0: I know that death is an alarm clock without a snooze button. A morning you thought was going to give you a few extra minutes in bed with your lover or at the table with your kids, but instead, it swept you away without warning, took you into the unknown without so much as a packed bag or a final goodbye. I know that some people leave, but it doesn't mean they're really gone. I know memories can last forever, even when the pain seems to run long. Hey, I'm Natasha T. Miller, and this is the Science of Grief. Trigger warning, today's episode is a heavy one. We're talking about suicide. If you're not in a space to hear this episode, please do something that helps you take care of your own mental health. Something I learned during this episode is the importance of language and the way that we talk about suicide. Abigail Waller, who you'll hear from later on, spoke to me about how we've moved away from the language of a person committing suicide, and we're now using terms like died by suicide or completed suicide, that also helps to decrease the stigma around the conversation of mental health and suicide. You'll hear me correct myself plenty of times throughout the episode, and that's fine. We kept that in here so that you all know that we're learning together. Today, you'll hear from Felicia Frabus. Felicia spoke with one of our producers, Kaylin Higgins, and shared her stories about losing her brother and also one of her cousins to suicide.
1: The beginning of May is both of my parents' birthdays. So that year... My mom was turning 50, what was the year? 2018. So it was my dad's birthday when we found out. So my mom and I were going to Target, we're at Target. It was probably like seven, eight o'clock at night. And we were just getting last minute things for her trip because her and her best friend were going to Florida for her 50th birthday. And then it's just gonna be like my dad and my brother and I at the house. So we were on the car ride home and my dad like called my mom, like automatically like called her like sobbing like you can hear it through the phone. And our first thought was, oh, it's our grandpa or like my dad's dad, because he um, had a couple health issues at the time. And We were like, oh, no, like it's grandpa or something like that. But something in like the back of my mind told me like, oh, I should text David, like because he lived in Virginia at the time um with a girlfriend and they were going through like a really rough breakup at the time. So we were like in communication a lot more, just checking in to see how he's doing and just talking a lot more. So something in the back of my mind just told me, Oh, I should text David. So as we're like speeding home, I was texting him, didn't get any response, but it was like okay, like normal. And then I found like we came in the house and my dad was in my parents' bedroom, um, like sobbing and he told us like David passed, like David's dead. Um, so at first we were just, like, shocked. We were like, no, like, talk to him this morning, talk to him. Like, last night he called that morning because um, we, we were out to brunch for my dad's birthday. And he uh-huh. called during brunch, and we missed the call, and then called right back um, and talked to him, to, like, said happy birthday, like, oh, well, like, we'll talk to you later, blah, blah, blah. And we were just, like, shocked and we just automatically went to, um, like calling his phone nonstop and texting him. We're like, no, it's like, it's not real. Like what ha- Like, no. And my mom actually called the detective back cause she didn't believe it. And then my dad's like, he's not going to answer the phone. Like he's not going to answer. Like you, like the detective just called me. Like when my dad first got the call, he said, and he goes, I thought he got into a dang motorcycle accident being on that motorcycle. But obviously it wasn't that, um, so we like called the detective, like ourselves, and like my mom and I, and got like the news of his passing. So it's just like immediate shock, like disbelief, like we didn't want to think it was true. Oh, I'm so sorry for that. I'm just like
2: taking it in. <laughs> that just like gave me chills. Sorry. <laughs> I'm
1: sorry. I have tissue oh, with me. So God. sorry if I.
2: <laughs> oh my goodness. So my question to you is: Were there any signs? No, no,
1: no, nothing. And I through after his passing, I learned a lot more. Like my, I mean, my family as a whole learned a lot more about suicide itself and the signs and stuff like that. And we would go back and think like, oh, is there something I could have done this and that? But we truly did not have any sign. Like we, there was nothing that would have hinted at us saying something was up besides like, obviously he was going through a rough time. He wasn't never, he wasn't really happy living in Virginia. He, like at the time, he like recently got out of the Navy um, and he was working like a civilian status job and he liked it and he did well for himself. Transitioning like out of the military um, because he was able to retire after 10 years, right? From 18. So he was like 31 when he retired. So like, that's already like an accomplishment itself. But yeah, we really had no clue i mean he was going through a breakup which we we're kind of like okay like it happens and unfortunately it was really serious with this girl um and there was just drama itself with the girl that i think our family kind of pinpointed a lot on
2: so after you got the know what were you feeling afterwards
1: um so at first when we first found out like i said it was like the shock and disbelief um eventually the sadness, like, I remember my whole family came over that night. I think everyone stayed over till like, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning um, when we all just, like, sat around, like, crying, trying to, like, accept it all. So after—and it's just that initial sadness. After that, I think a lot of it turned into anger. Sorry.
2: <laughs> oh, no. It's fine. It's fine. You have nothing to worry about.
1: And I think that's just for me. And I would say, like, probably my parents, too, because we just— and my other my little brother, because we just didn't understand why, um, and that's something I've learned with grief and suicide, like you really will never know why he left a note, and his note said like it wasn't like our fault or his upbringing or anything like that it wasn't his parents' fault, it was just him, and he said he was like fighting stuff that we didn't know about, so I learned you will really will never learn why and you have to like get to a point where you stop searching. So I think a lot of it was anger for a while because you immediately jump to like the relationship drama and you want to pinpoint it on someone like you did this when really I can't say if she was the sole reason because I haven't had contact with her since it happened like our family... It just didn't want anything to do with that. And sometimes, like mentally, I think, and still to this day, I'm like, oh no, he's fine. Like, he's in Virginia because I wasn't with him and he was in a different state. So I'm like, oh no, it's fine. He's like doing his thing in Virginia. Like, it's all good. But obviously, like, it's not. And I think even still now, like, two going on three years later, It's still acceptance, but the grief just hits you on, like, random days, random times. Like, I think, like, the other day I had, like, a really vivid dream this morning. Yeah, it was this morning. I had, like, a really vivid dream, and I just had to, like, sit there and think about it because it felt so real. It's just, like, a normal, I think we were at, like, the mall or something like that hanging out, and we are like, oh, yeah, like, that happened, but, like, it was a dream, but it felt so real, and it takes you back for a minute. So,
2: yeah. Was your cousin different or similar
1: to... I would say it was different, but also similar. Mm -hmm. I think similarly, it was still the same shock and grief and emotions, but it was also kind of different because I guess I knew afterwards, I experienced this before. I don't want to say I knew how to get through it, but... I don't know. It just felt different than, and maybe because it was my cousin, not like my brother. Mm -hmm. So I would say in that sense, it was different. But the feelings, I would say, and the like initial shock and grief were the same. Just
2: to paint a picture, your brother passed recently and then months later, your cousin. And I know during that time, you're going through a really difficult time trying to process everything you say you were like in denial and you're trying to trying to get a sense yeah of so to say do you feel like that after hearing about your cousin's passing do you think it kind of pushed you back as far as like your grieving process
1: I would say it pushed me back for a little bit mm-hmm. I think it knocked me back into that initial grief where you're just crying and emotional but then i think afterwards i just knew to keep going Mm -hmm. so i would say it it was an it was like an initial setback
2: so while you were grieving how did you
1: cope um i didn't seek out professional help i really just depended on my family a lot and my friends but grieving was really different because the day after I found out that my brother passed the next day was the first day of the spring summer semester for school and my parents and I were talking We're like you don't have to go like it's okay like I know you signed up for a class because you just want to stay on schedule but like you do not have to go and I don't know what told I mean I know what told me to go because um, my brother was always like put school as your number one priority um, and he had like a saying on his mask card he always said, and I couldn't find it but it was like, oh wait, he always said do everything the best you can don't shorthand yourself because at the end of the day if you shorthand it, you're only hurting yourself and since school was a number one priority for us something just told me like, I have to go to class did I pay attention in class? no <laughs> mentally like, was I there? no, but physically I was so I really just focused and put a lot of my energy into school that semester and then the fall semester after. And pretty soon, I felt like I had to be the strong one for my family. And I, since I was living at home that summer, I felt like it was ver- like hard for me to take time for myself to grieve because we were worried about my little brother. Um, I was worried about my parents. And so I felt like it was really hard for me to grieve because I wanted to be the strong one for my family. So then at the end of that summer, I moved out again. I moved into my first apartment with one of my close friends. um, And we still um, live together now three years later. And she went through kind of like a similar experience. So I really depended on her a lot. And I recently moved back home to my parents' house. So I guess being with them, especially around uh, my dad's birthday, which was in May for his three year anniversary, Mm -hmm. being home and with my family and spending more time with them definitely made me appreciate them more and appreciate the support system that I have here. So how is your family? They're good. We really symbolize a lot in Cardinals. And it's actually, it's so funny because everywhere we go, we see one and we're like, oh, there's our boys. And because it we would say it's for my cousin, my brother, and then my grandpa who passed in December. Mm-hmm. So every time we see one or if it's like two chasing each other, we're like, oh, there's the boys. <laughs> um, and I actually saw one last night. We were sitting outside talking and we just see a cardinal like fly through the backyard or for the holiday weekend we were up north at my grandma's house and we were sitting having a bonfire and there goes another cardinal just like just we just take in like the little symbols like that but it wasn't until winter of 2019 semester where I had a internship with care of southeastern michigan and healthy communities beaumont and girls point where immediately right off the bat They're like, we're planning a suicide prevention walk and like, we need your help on it. And automatically I had like a lead role in that. This is literally like written in the stars. Like this was like one of those like destiny moments to focus on something like that a year later. And the walk was actually the day before his one year anniversary. So I think working through that process actually helped my grief a lot more. Um, because myself, I learned a lot more about suicide through the program because we partnered with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So I learned a lot more then. And then it allowed me to process my own grief in a healthy way besides avoiding it and just focusing on school. in And, like, whether it was, you know, having a day where all I want to do is cry, like, it was okay. Um Or just, like, finding other ways to channel that. Um, And then I found myself, like, coming back more. I was hanging out with my friends more. I was more involved. I was more open to talking about this with my parents. Because, like, even before, like, we had, like, before my brother passed, like, we had no idea, like, or experience with, like, depression or anxiety or suicidal ideality. Um, And then afterwards... You're definitely more comfortable with that conversation. And we were more open. So during that walk,
2: can you tell us um, what were some thoughts that were
1: going through your mind? Yeah, I mean, the start of it, I think, was more high stress, getting everything ready. And it was in the back of my mind. But I think actually walking, and we were at Gross Point, so we were on, the path was right on the water. Mm -hmm. and the water is just so calming and like very like serene and we like me and my siblings and I like grew up going up north so like the lake and the water has always been a big thing for us so I just think like walking and then like having like my whole family behind me and my friends really meant a lot I remember thinking like oh my god he would be so proud of me right now or they both would be (laughs) And I remember um, my mom making like little buttons with their pictures on them. We got to wear them. Oh, so we had like little like little pictures of them on our shirts. And what something was really significant was with, because um, it was through the CARE put it on, but we partnered with uh, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention mm-hmm. and what they do is they give you, they have a whole table of like just beads, but each color bead represents like a different meaning. So one of it is one color is like you yourself struggle, um, with depression or suicide. Um, you lost a family member, you lost a parent, you lost someone in the armed forces, like all these different ties, um, to suicide. So, Seeing like everybody there with like different beads and like and the different meanings behind all of them, mm-hmm. you, you really felt more connected to like complete strangers mm-hmm. uh, than you would think because you are all going through the same the same thing without knowing each other's um, full story. Mm-hmm.
2: And for those um, that were wearing a bead who or like maybe struggling with suicide or depression, did you find that it was a lot of people with that particular color?
1: Yeah, a lot more than you would think. I think everybody, well, not everybody had that color bead on, but everybody had beads on of some sort.
2: Mm-hmm. So when you actually crossed the finish line, what did it do for you particularly? For
1: me, mm-hmm. it symbolized support, I guess, like physically with my family being there, but also just mentally my own self, that if I can pull something like this off on um, like the one year anniversary to the D, mm-hmm. then I can get through anything. <laughs> and I know that they both have me wherever they are. Mm-hmm.
2: For those who may be experiencing um, loved ones who either contemplating about suicide or has lost anyone from suicide, what would be like a message
1: you Um, would
2: say to them?
1: I would say always just be available, be the person that they can depend on and be a shoulder to cry on um, and just always be able to listen if I could like check in more, I would have. Again, like you'll never know, like would that have had an effect or changed things? But if I just like sent like a text or a call, like more often saying like, hey, like what's going on? Like you good, like how you doing today? I think that's one thing I regret the most. So I would say just check in with them and check in with your friends and your family because you really don't know what everyone's going through uh, on the inside even if it's someone you see every day. For people that just lost someone close to them, I would say there's always going to be like a hole in your heart. Like you feel like a part of you, like also left with them, but you learn how to move on and you just want to do everything for that person. For me, like getting my degree... Um, being the first one to go to college, so putting like school first, and getting my degree, and focusing in public health, and having a passion in mental health, it's just, it's everything for him. So I would say, like, you just have to you just have to keep going for them.
0: We just heard from Felicia Fravis, who shared stories of losing her brother and her cousin. She also talked about how her and her family learned to be more open to the conversation of mental health and suicide and how she navigated her grief by doing things that her brother would have wanted her to do if he was still alive. I feel like it's important that we invite one of our experts to the show to talk about Felicia's story and talk about the importance of us all deciding to keep going after we've lost a loved one especially to them completing suicide. To do this, I've invited Abigail Waller, expert, CAPS counselor at Michigan State University, bereaved parent, and friend of the podcast. Today's episode, you know, is, is, is a little heavy. We're talking about Felicia and um, the suicide of her brother. Uh, before we get into, you know, any questions, can you just give us your, your thoughts on Felicia's story?
3: Yeah, I've got quite a few. I, I saw a number of strengths that came through, and maybe I can touch on those. The first thought I had is maybe just to start with talking about language, so and how important language is and how language on this topic is, has changed. So we've moved away from using the term committed suicide. This phrase really evokes associations with committed a crime or committed a sin, and makes us think about something morally uh, reprehensible or illegal. So the phrase committed suicide um, also ignores the fact that suicide is often the consequence of an unaddressed illness like depression and mental illness. So I just thought that was an important thing just to begin with. And the terms that we use more now are uh, die, just died by suicide, or sometimes you might hear completed suicide. Celebrate 75 years of public radio in Detroit with WDET. As our spring fundraiser commences, let's unite to support what makes Detroit unique. 75 years of people-powered radio. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app.
0: There's two, two sides to this coin because we talk about, yeah. you know, uh, her brother dying and we talk about, you know, uh, you know, that being an unaddressed illness uh, you know something that's that's underlying but also for Felicia this was all very unexpected where they talk about there there were no signs so I guess maybe just speaking to both sides of that coin one being if you are experiencing this the signs what could they look like what could they be but also on the uh, other person on the other end how can you recognize that someone is experiencing these signs when they're not as present or in, in your face.
3: So that is not unusual. I have heard that a fair amount, especially working with families who've lost teenagers and young adults, that they, they report that there were no signs. They did not know that their child, young, young adult, was experiencing depression. And sometimes we see that in teenagers when something happens in their life and they act impulsively. And, you know, over a breakup with a boyfriend or girlfriend, and it feels at that moment in time, the worst thing, thing in their life. Remember, the primary goal of suicide is not to end your life, but it's to end pain at that moment in time. So on the other flip side, you're talking, um, you are know, you, there is typically an underlining mental health illness, but we don't always know it. So what does it look like when someone might be suicidal? It's you know increase in depressive symptoms, withdrawing. Sometimes people talk about right before somebody acts on those thoughts if they might give away possession. And people also talk about sometimes there's a decrease in depression right before suicide because when they're really depressed they can't act on those thoughts of not wanting to live and act on those thoughts of dying the plan that they have. But sometimes if depression is if it lifted just a little bit, they could act on that. So sometimes you see that as well. But it's looking out for depressive symptoms and withdrawing.
0: Uh one thing that I, I wanted to talk about is um do you feel like the grief over the loss of someone who has committed suicide or not committed suicide yep. who has completed suicide. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is do you feel like it's it's different from the grief that you experience when, you know, you lose someone to something that is not suicide or Absolutely. suicide
3: Absolutely. So there are different pieces. So with uh, loss by suicide, I would call that a traumatic loss, traumatic grief. So there's trauma and there is grief. Grief generally is just a very massive, a messy process. But when there's more stigma, there is going to be potential of more, more trauma as well.
0: Do you have any, any advice on how people can, can process that trauma or deal with the trauma and the grief at the same time?
3: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think the very first thing, the most powerful thing for just a griever is to be with other people who get it, whether that's joining a support group or seeking out other people who have lost loved ones by suicide. Although, you know, my personal grief background is different. I have not experienced what I call a frontline loss. So it's a family member by suicide. I put my loss in the category of a traumatic loss, losing a young child. And for me, the most powerful, I mean, if I had my number one wish, it would be to bring my son back. But next thing that's helpful is being with other parents, people who get it people who just can nod and say i know i know and i understand your pain. What we need to heal is whether we're introverted or extroverted we need connections. We need a really robust support system. And often typically we have to create that ourselves whether that's a support group, going to a therapist, seeking out people that are helpful and maybe putting a little boundary around people that aren't so helpful. Yeah. Grief is there's elements of it that you learn to live with it forever. It doesn't mean the intensity of the emotions and those feelings are going to last forever. We kind of grow, hopefully, around the grief and so we can hold it better. I mean, someone described it to me as you just become, you become stronger. Imagine holding um, a big backpack and you just become stronger and you can hold it over time. So the intensity does diminish, but there are elements that go on forever. You know, one of the things that comes to mind with death by suicide is that there's more stigma. And when there's more stigma, people get less support, as I mentioned. Um, I think I saw some statistics that loss by, let's see, a loss by suicide your support system is 50% less than another type of grief.
4: Wow. So
3: people withdraw when they don't know what to say. So that's really important to keep in mind that when we lose someone by suicide, those individuals, their support system's going to be more fragile.
0: Absolutely. Um,
3: and it's really important that the griever really works hard to stay connected with others. And if you're trying to help someone, it's really important not to downplay anything. what, what I mean by that is I, I think of sentences that start with well, at least, you know, at least they had a good life. At least they're out of pain. At least those types of sentences are not helpful for a griever.
0: So if we were getting rid of the at least, do you have any tips or or, or language that you can use to let somebody know that you, you hear them, you empathize with Absolutely. them, you care there for them?
3: I mean, one thing that I've heard grievers say over time, and I've definitely experienced it myself, um, not to pretend that you know what it's like, you know, not to say things like, I know how you feel. Unless you've walked in their shoes, you don't know what it's like to to lose a child, a brother by suicide, brother by murder. You don't know what it's like and it's, it's okay. You know, tell, tell me about that. What is that like? Yeah. So it's also learning to sit with the intensity of those emotions and just helping someone hold it. You know, that's really what therapists do. They, they hold the pain for people and they don't rush in to fix. Yes. And you know, we live in a society where we we want to fix things for people. We want to make it better. And with grief, we can't. We can't bring the person back. We can't make it better. But we can sit. And we, as humans, we need we need witnesses. We need someone to witness what has happened to our life. And that is very powerful and healing.
0: Yeah, just just seeing it, just listening to it.
3: You know, in, in my situation, I had two and a half years to prepare for my son's death. So I really wanted to do grief right and my background being in, men, in the field of mental health. But grief is, there's elements of it that you learn to live with it forever. We kind of grow, hopefully, around the grief and so we can hold it better. I mean, someone described it to me as you just become, you become stronger. Imagine holding um, a big backpack and you just become stronger and you can hold it over time. So the intensity does diminish, but there are elements that go on forever. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, the goal here is not necessarily acceptance or closure. We hear those words a lot in our language. But the goal is, it's learning to live with the grief, Let's see. learning to live with the grief with more love than pain. Yeah.
0: I think that's I mean, I I, I love the way that's put. Absolutely. I mean, the more you you train, the more that you practice, the more skilled you become, the more, you know, the more stronger you become. That's kind of what we, um, what we discussed in the last episode as well. So yeah, you know, this is the backpack and maybe the first day I couldn't, I couldn't hold it, you know, now the second day I, I can pick it up and then it's five minutes and it's 10 minutes at a time. It's 20 minutes at a time. And, and I, I can live holding this backpack. We just learn to, to adjust and Readjust as as necessary, and we have you know um, the the capabilities to to do that. How do we become open to to that process and see it as a, a positive that these people are in some way still coming into our lives?
3: Absolutely. So you've touched on something really important that they now talk about in the grief literature, and it's, it took me a while to wrap my head around it. But it it's called continuing bond theory. Your relationship with the person continues despite their death. So in Felicia's story, how I understood it it with her, her, the suicide prevention walk, she, her brother was helping her help other people. And that's how she continues her relationship with her brother at those suicide prevention walks and other activities that um, promote awareness about suicide. So that is continuing her bond with her brother. So it can come in different forms, whether it's, on an anniversary, remembering someone, um, reflecting on their impact in your life, the relationship doesn't end just in their death. I mean, I guess me, you know, my motivation of even talking to you is my son helping me help other people. Who I feel like as a griever, I learned this, what I call this tacit knowledge, this incredible knowledge that I couldn't re- read, uh, gain from books about what it's like to to lose someone that you love
0: deeply. Absolutely. I think that's important. Um, you know, that's the, the the reason, you know, for the Science of Grief podcast coming mm-hmm. from, you know, my personal story, but then, you know, from the experts to uh, the people who are just here telling their stories, these young yes. adults, they are helping other people. You know, it becomes uh, not less about you, but you 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 might move out of yes. the center a little bit. And now your center is... I'm going around and I'm helping other people. And that's also keeping me connected. You know, if I had not been doing the work that I was doing, I, a, lot of, a lot of the relationship to my brother, I believe, would have slipped away. But by yeah. continuing to do this work and continuing to surround myself with other communities of people who have experienced losses or similar losses, um, it keeps me connected. Yes. Yeah. And it makes yeah. me feel like I'm, I'm helping. So we know that suicide is—it's the ultimate, right? It's—it's yeah. it's, 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 like you talk about—it's—it's it's traumatic. When yeah. you talk about, you know, mental health, why do you think that the—that suicide or suicidal ideation goes undetected so often? I
3: think the the stigma about talking about how we're doing. You know, think about when you bump into somebody in the street. How are you? We're not really pausing, are we? I'm fine. I'm great. You know, we don't really talk about it. Again, I'm reluctant to put positive things on tragic things. This is a very a tragic story. But what I did hear in Felicia's story is this positive that her family now talks about mental health, talks about depression. You know, a lot of families, we don't. We're not given permission to. But you know, hopefully conversations like this will help. Stigmatized, and that people can say when someone says, "How are you?" Well, actually, I'm, I'm not great today, and that they have the the confidence to know that most of us go through that. I think even you know therapists panic when clients disclose suicidal thoughts, but there is a difference. I think often having passive, what I call passive suicidal thoughts, mm-hmm. when you're going through something really, really, really tough, is normal. When it becomes something that we need to reach out and get help is when those thoughts become more pervasive, more chronic, and those thoughts are, so it, it changes from passive suicidal thoughts to more active, that you have a plan, an intent, and that's when you absolutely need to reach out for help. You know, we, we live in a society where people can't say that they feel, they feel rubbish, they feel sad, they feel down. We want to always make it better for people. It's getting them help, not panicking, getting them help, making sure they stay connected, you know, trusting your
0: rapport with the person and honesty is that they're disclosing that. How do we let them know that it's okay for that to not be a secret and something that you actually feel like you have to act on?
3: I think when we worry about someone's safety, there's no, we can't keep that confidentiality. That, that secrecy, we, we need to... Act on it and get them get them support. And ultimately, I think it's a relief if someone is disclosing that they're not feeling safe. I think they're disclosing it to get help.
0: After each episode, we try to give you a performance, something for you to sit with and reflect on. Today's performance comes from Cranbrook Christ Church Choir. Here's a song. This episode was produced by me, Natasha T. Miller, Shamim Sultana, Kaylin Higgins, our executive producer, David Lyons, and our editor, David Weinberg. Theme music by Jordan Davis with sound design and additional music by Sam Bobian. The last song you heard was "Introit and Kyrie from Gabriel Faré Requiem by Cranbrook Christchurch Choir. With additional production support from Patrick Vaughn, Holly Ann Stewart, Aaron Appleby, Maida Stange, and Antoine Scott. The Science of Grief podcast is a collaboration between Science Gallery Detroit and WDET, Detroit's NPR station, and is supported by the Children's Foundation of Michigan, MSU-FCU, and Science Sandbox. Remember, if you are in emotional distress, reach out to someone you trust, or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number, 1-800-273-8255. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of your mental health.